Ephesians has the longest teaching on marriage of any place in the New Testament. So we thought we'd slow down and take three weeks to go through this marriage part. And uh, this is the second week of doing that. If you weren't here last week, we'll catch you up in just a second. But let me just ask you a question. There were four different movies that were represented on that. Can any of you figure out what all of them have in common? Marriage. <laughs> Very good. Now, in every one of them, the woman did not want to get married. Is that weird? I don't know. Jairus put that together. I don't know what that means, Jairus, but he told me he's just so glad that Stacy said yes. So, all right. Well, let me just tell you a little bit about what we covered last week, and then we'll get a running start and move on this week. Uh, when we got married, and when we uh, were in the church or wherever we got married, we actually came in with a bunch of hopes, dreams, and desires for what our marriage would be. And there's various things that we may have been thinking. We may have been thinking, you know, I'm hoping that we'll have just this wonderful dream house. It will be such an awesome thing. Or that, you know, my spouse is going to be just like my mom. Or my spouse is going to be just like my father. Uh, we may have thought, you know, we're going to have tons of fun together. That's what I'm expecting. We're just going to have the greatest time together. We're going to have kids or we're not going to have kids or we're going to wait for five years to have kids or we're going to try to get pregnant on our wedding night, whatever the thing was on that. We're going to spend tons of time together because we haven't been able to do that up to this point. Uh, not as much as we like, but now we're living together. Now this is just perfect. We'll be able to spend all kinds of time. And guys, you all had dreams of what your wife probably uh, wouldn't wear to bed. And uh, this might be something you were hoping she would not wear. And women, you are thinking, my husband won't care what I wear to bed. He'll only want me to be comfortable. And, you know. and so you had all of these kinds of things. But one of the things that's really interesting, even though during the ceremony, during your vows, you basically make a commitment to unconditionally love your spouse, the reality is that very often, almost certainly, our desires are going to change to expectations. And all of a sudden, it's not just going to be things we hope for, but they are things that we expect. And we talked last week that when that happens, our marriage becomes a contract of sorts. In other words, I will do for you, and you will do for me, and that's the way that this thing works best. And we move into what we call the debt-debtor relationship, and that is sort of the idea of you owe me. You owe me. If I'm going to do my part, I expect you to do the part that you're to do. And if, I, you know, if, if it works just right, if we're both doing the 50-50 thing, then everything's going to be great. But... If we don't quite hit it, then there's going to be problems in our marriage. And a lot of us live with that kind of tension because we have expectations and our expectations are not being met. So I asked you to do an assignment. And if you're here last week, here was the assignment. I wanted you to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's known as the love chapter. I hope some of you did that. I hope all of you did that. And I wanted you to ask the question, what does your spouse, in fact, owe you? According to this passage about love, what does your spouse owe you? Well, do any of you have a thought about that after looking at 1 Corinthians 13? What do you think? Wow, stone silence. Any of you have a thought? Well, let me just ask you. What do you think your spouse owes you? Respect, all right? Anything else? Loyalty. You know what? If you read 1 Corinthians 13, I've got really bad news for you. 
Do you know what your spouse owes you? Nothing. Nothing. And you're like, well, okay, I can do without the house, you know, the, the pretty house on the ocean. I can do without gobs of money. I don't want my spouse to be like one of my parents. I don't want any of that. But doesn't my spouse owe me respect? Doesn't my spouse owe me faithfulness? How about, you know, intimacy? Doesn't my spouse, you know, owe me love? I mean, that's, those are sort of the basic pillars of marriage, of a relationship. Doesn't my spouse owe me that stuff? And the answer that the Bible gives is no. Now, we're going to talk next week about if you're not getting any of those things, what are you supposed to do then? Because it's very hard to be in a marriage where those things aren't present. But here's the truth of it. As soon as you say, my spouse owes me, there's a really dangerous philosophy or mentality that has entered into the marriage. And here's a couple of the things that become casualties. One is you're not grateful. Because if your spouse does what's expected, well, it's expected. So you're not grateful for that. But if your spouse falls short of doing it, not only are you not grateful, but you're angry because your spouse isn't doing it. And it's interesting, I got, uh, I got an email this week from a couple in our church, a husband actually, and uh, he said, you know, I was reflecting on that thought about this idea of a 50-50 kind of a thing and, you know, what happens when things don't match up and how does that impact gratitude? And so Steve wrote these words. He said, Kevin, the whole debt-debtor thing rings true for Robin and me because it relates precisely with conversations we've had in the past even though we use different terminology. If all we are trying to do is share the work load 50-50, then even if it is actually a perfect split, each person will feel that they're doing more than their share. I'm naturally more aware of the effort that it takes to do my share and just as natural for me to underappreciate the work done by Robin. I mean, the bills and the mail, it's a total hassle. Now, how hard is it really to cook dinner? We realized pretty early that keeping score like this is, is a losing proposition. We have to make extra effort, this is the key, to appreciate the contribution made by the other, to be grateful for the contribution made by the other, and simultaneously be willing uh, and happily to do so more than 50% of the work. That's a covenant, not a contract. And Steve's exactly right about that. We naturally overvalue what we contribute. We undervalue what our spouse does. So it's a losing proposition. If we have the I-O idea going, it's a losing proposition. Here's the other problem, is when I think that my spouse owes me, I'm going to try to control my spouse so that I get what I think I deserve. And so, you know, some of you are thinking, but if I didn't control my spouse, it would be a total mess. You know, a wife says, you know, look at my husband. You know, he'd be a total mess without me. You know, wouldn't you, honey? Wouldn't you be a total mess without me? And sort of the thought here is, I've got to keep my husband's feet to the fire or we're in total bad shape. Or, you know, a husband's saying, you know, have you ever seen the way my wife handles money? If I don't try to control that, we will be bankrupt. I mean, I've got to control that. But here's the problem with trying to control. What it leads to us is either dominating our spouse or manipulating our spouse. So we, we have words that come out of our mouth like, you know, you better do that. I'm doing my part. You better do your part. You know, pal, you do that one more time. You'll be sleeping on the couch for a month. Or things that are a little more manipulative. 
no, no, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong. I just need to be by myself. Don't you love that? Uh, or, you know, or things like, um, you know, that's just like your mother. You're doing just what your mother does. You love hearing those kinds of things. So we have sort of this thing that ping-pongs back and forth where we're trying to control our spouse in any way that we can. Now, we have a word for people who try to control other people. You know what that word is? Parents. Parents. And I'm pretty sure that your spouse doesn't want another one of those. And you probably don't either. And so here's the problem with the I.O. philosophy is we move into non-gratitude and we move into controlling our spouse. And those are so detrimental to a good marriage, so detrimental to what you were hoping your marriage would be. And yet many of us are locked into this kind of struggle back and forth. So here's what we want to do. Today what we want to talk about is how do I get out of the I.O. or I am owed philosophy? How do you actually do that? And we're going to be looking in Ephesians 5. In fact, you can turn there. Ephesians 5, uh, we're going to actually start back in verse 18, if you can flip your Bibles over there. Before we do, though, uh, let me point out something that's really, really important if you're going to understand this whole marriage thing. And it is this point, that marriage is not between you and your spouse alone. Now, we all think that. We think as long as my spouse and I agree, as long as we're on the same page, as long as she said yes to me, as long as he asked me, we're all good. But that is not at all how the Bible portrays marriage. And this is just so crucial. You'll never get out of the you owe me unless you understand this. One time when Jesus was teaching about marriage uh, in Matthew 19, he said these words. And uh, we just need to look at this for a second because this is going to help shift our paradigm, shift the way that we think about things. In Matthew 19.4, Jesus speaking to these religious leaders. They were actually scholars. And so it's sort of interesting how he starts. He says, haven't you read, he replied. Now, what he means is he says, somewhere written in the Old Testament, there's something that's really important to this conversation we're having about marriage. So he says, haven't you read? And, of course, it was a silly statement because those guys were experts in the Old Testament law. They had read everything in the Old Testament. A lot of them had memorized it. But the point that Jesus is making is you have forgotten the application of something that's really crucially important to any discussion about marriage. So he says, haven't you read? Uh, That at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Let me ask you this question. Some of you may know this. What is that a quote out of? Do you know what book that comes out of? Guess early. Genesis. In fact, it is a quote that takes place before sin enters the human race. Genesis 2. God institutes marriage. It's his idea. He says, I'm going to have two people of the opposite sex come together and get married. This is my idea. This is the way that I want it to work. And so he says, from the beginning, it's been this way. Then he makes a conclusion. He says, Jesus says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And here's really the important thing on this. Don't want to talk about divorce or stuff like that right now. Here's the important thing. God feels totally justified in saying, when you get married, I've got to say. When you get married, I am part of that. I created the institution. In fact, I have a patent on marriage. I was the one that came up with the idea. Marriage runs through me. 
Secondly, he would say, and I have authority in your marriage. This is not just between the two of you. The way you run your marriage, whether you're going to stay married or not, it's not just between the two of you. I am involved in this. I am, I am in this. And then he makes this incredible statement, and it's really a mysterious, sort of, it's meant to be mysterious and mystical and supernatural. God actually fuses two people into one person. And again, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about what that actually means, but it is this idea. God seals your marriage. God is not only intervening, he not only orchestrates it, he actually seals it. He brings you together and says, okay, I'm going to lock you into this relationship together. And just to show that, you know, if, if that sounds a little foreign to you or maybe a little difficult to you, when the disciples heard Jesus say this, you know what their conclusion was? You know what they, they said at the end of this teaching about marriage? Well, maybe we shouldn't get married or maybe we shouldn't be married. And do you know what Jesus responds? Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't get married. It's way harder than you think. It's way bigger than you think. This is serious business, is what Jesus is saying here. So here's the first thing. You can never properly understand what God's intention for your marriage is unless you understand that he is a third party in your marriage. He is involved in it. He expects to be fully consulted, fully brought into it, one passage says that he is woven into it, sort of like if you were to, to strand three cords together. He is that intimately involved in your marriage. That's the first thing. Now, Paul, here's the deal. Now we're back in Ephesians. Paul is going to build on this idea. So that's a thought that is sort of coursing through the New Testament. That's what marriage is all about. It's a three-party deal, not a two-party deal. God is involved. God holds authority over your relationship. But here's the most amazing thing is Paul is going to say now, you can't do it without God's help. God is essential, not only that he sort of has authority and you're accountable to him, but that he actually holds sway over your success. So now, we're in Ephesians. You're so excited. We're back in our book. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, says these words. Now, Lo taught on this um, a couple of weeks ago. And I don't want to go through his teaching. He did a fantastic job. You can go and listen to his message. But I want to just build off of it because what he actually taught spills into what we're talking about today. In Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. And then here's the key statement. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit now is going, the rest of the book of Ephesians is going to talk about what does your life look like when you're filled with the Spirit. And again, Lowe did a great job of explaining what that means, but it means being controlled by the Spirit, that the Spirit has sway in your life, that he does things, he empowers you, he guides you. Then, after that, Paul gives five things that happen when somebody is filled by the Spirit. Uh, so he says these, uh, you're going to speak to one another with psalms, there are five participles, you're going to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, Sing and make music. There's two right there from your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks. There's a fourth one to the Lord, to the God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the final one, usually participles are ING words, but to make this read smoother, they didn't put that in. It says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so that's the fifth participle. In other words, all five of these things pour out of somebody who's being filled by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Now, this has huge relevance for marriage, and you're saying, well, I don't see how. I don't see marriage anywhere in there. 
Well, now Paul, and this is part of the way that he wrote, there's a huge parenthesis. After he says, submit one to the other, he's going to spend about 25 verses now saying, let me be really specific about this submitting thing. Let me really hammer this in. And guess what's the first relationship he's going to talk about? Marriage. He's going to hit marriage. He's going to say, all right, so let me tell you how this submission thing actually plays out, how you actually submit one to another. Now, let me just say this. One to another, submit one to another, is called mutual submission. And in a second, we're going to hit a super controversial statement. Some of you know it's coming. Some of you, this, is, this might be the most hated phrase in the Bible. But before we get to this most hated phrase, before you decide, I hate it, I hate Paul that he wrote it. I hate the Bible that it's in there. I just hate it. Let me just explain. There is a phrase that runs before it that helps define what we're talking about here. And it is this phrase. Submit one to the other. In other words, the idea of a Christian relationship, any relationship, any relationship, has to do with mutual submission. So if you're single here and saying, this is so irrelevant to me, I just made it relevant. Every relationship you have, there's to be mutual submission. This also includes, in a marriage, there is to be mutual submission. Now, we'll talk about what submission means here in a second. But if you don't understand that, if you think that what Paul's going to say here is one person submits to the other one, and the other one's the boss and dominates and gets everything he wants in his box, you are sadly mistaken for how this thing works. All right, so that is the setup. Now Paul is going to talk about marriage. It's under the phrase of submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. So uh, it says, um, starting in verse 22, why don't we read this together? In fact, you know what? Women, we'll let you read this, okay? Because I know how much you love it, all right? So let me get you started, and I want you to read it with gusto because this isn't as bad as you think. You never thought these words would come out of your mouth, but here we go. Wives... Keep going, yes. <laughs> All right, I know you're about to vomit and you couldn't get through the rest of that, right? You're like, how far does this go? How long? Oh, Lord. All right, so now, as you can guess, this is a very, very controversial phrase. It has been argued about for centuries. In recent Western civilization, it has become, uh, it really has become something that people have push back on the Bible to say it is so irrelevant for our living today. And in fact, I don't know, did any of you see the GOP debates this week in Iowa? All right, well, if you didn't see it, I'm going to show you a little part, and you're going to see how relevant this really is. In 2006, when you were running for Congress, you described a moment in your life when your husband said you should study for a degree in tax law. You said you hated the idea. And then you explain, quote, but the Lord said, be submissive. Wives, you are to be submissive to your husbands. As president, would you be submissive to your husband? 
for that question, Byron. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Marcus and I will be married for 33 years this September 10th. I'm in love with him. I'm so proud of him. And both he and I, what submission means to us, if that's what your question is, it means respect. I respect my husband. He's a wonderful, godly man and a great father. And he respects me as his wife. That's how we operate our marriage. We respect each other. We love each other. And I've been so grateful that we've been able to build a home together. We have five wonderful children and 23 foster children. We built a business together and a life together. And I'm very proud of him. All right. Thank you, Representative. That, we're not actually trying to like, promote her unnecessarily. It's all up to you. Uh, but isn't that interesting? This week, right center stage, all of a sudden this thing pops out, and you can see how the crowd responded even to the question. It is just fraught with controversy. People immediately have strong feelings about this idea of a wife submitting to her husband. And incidentally, her answer was not a bad answer, but it was not a complete answer. It means more than respect, which we'll see here in a second. But here's probably the problem, is that for uh, really centuries, men have used, husbands have used this verse to try and dominate their wives, to basically say, listen, what's in my box is really important, and you better take care of it, and I don't need to worry about what's in your box. And so we get men that sort of have this idea, I'm the king of the castle, I rule the chauvinistic kind of side of things. Just again, for centuries and centuries, we're trying to dig out of this attitude where husbands have used this verse like a club to beat their wives over the head. And it, the, actually, the idea is, if you're a good Christian, you'll let me do this to you. That is such a huge problem. It is such the antithesis of what Paul is teaching here. We really need to roll up our sleeves and look at this. But here's the mistake, women. The mistake is to say, so I can blow that off. I don't need to submit to my husband. Is that what you're telling me? And that's also wrong. So let's go ahead and look and see exactly what Paul is saying here. Let me first say this. In, this. in the time that he spoke, it was a terribly chauvinistic society. In other words, men did rule their house. They had absolute control over anything that happened in their house. They had life and death uh, control over their children. Literally, they could have their children killed if they wanted to. And as far as wives went, they totally ruled. Whatever they said went, they could divorce their wife for almost any reason. In fact, a lot of people believe for any reason. In fact, if a husband came home and said three times to his wife, I divorce you, the divorce was finalized. No courts, no nothing. She just had to leave. It was terrible. It was a terrible society. So when Paul says, wives submit to your husbands, nobody would raise an eyebrow to that. That was the culture they lived in. It was both the Jewish culture and the Greek-Roman culture that was uh, alive and well up in Ephesus. Here's what would have been the shocking statement that Paul makes after that. Paul says to husbands, husbands, well, men will let you do this. And, you know, you're going to read this like, yeah, no big deal. I'm just telling you, if this is no big deal to you, you don't understand it. All right, so guys, let's read this together. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, 
because that's complicated, a lot of times, guys, we just feel like we slide right off the hook. Let me just make this really clear what this is saying. Unless you're willing to make the sacrifices that Jesus did for the church, for your wife, you are violating what Paul says here. Can I remind you what the sacrifices were that Jesus made for the church? He became human. He came to earth. He served in a way that was unbelievable. He faced persecution. He faced mockery. He was abandoned. Eventually, he was captured. He was unjustly accused. He was sentenced. He was tortured, and he was killed. After he died, the worst thing happened to him. He actually went to hell in the place of everyone who wouldn't to pay for sins. Paul has that in his mind when he makes this statement. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus loved the church. This is an outrageous statement. It was totally outrageous for that day and age because the idea that a husband would do anything for a wife was ridiculous. And yet Paul doesn't just say, hey, treat your wife with a little bit of respect. You know, do some things that are sort of, pay a little attention to the stuff that's in her box, the stuff, her hopes, dreams, and pay a little attention to that. He jumps right over that. He says, unless you're willing to make sacrifices that are so substantial that no one could ever question who comes first in your marriage, unless you're willing to make those sacrifices, you are failing as a husband. That is the role of the husband. Now, he backs up and he'll say, so, wives, do you think you could submit to a man like that? Do you think that you could put his box of wishes, dreams, and desires ahead of yours when he's treating you in this way? And now you start to understand the genius of how Paul sets marriage up to work or, or how he communicates how God wants it to work. Now, it's so interesting because when it comes to this passage, so often we skip over self-application and we move right to our spouse's application. So a guy might say to his wife, honey, I think the Bible says you're to submit to me. And she says, that's true, honey, but I think the Bible says that you're to love me the way that Jesus loved the church. Well, I think that I'm the head of the family and you should just do what I say. Well, I'll do that as soon as I see, like, the holes in your hands and the, you know, <laughs> you know no problem. And so we kind of use this to joust with each other, almost like, I'm not concerned about my part, you just do your part. But of course, what Paul's saying here is, don't be concerned about what your spouse does. I'm telling you what you should do. You can control what you do. So wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, look into the box of your husbands and say, listen, I'm going to uh, do everything I can to make sure that the hopes, dreams, and desires that he has come true. I'm going to play that role. And guys, you look at it and you say, well, I'm going to do that for my wife. I'm going to look into that box and I'm going to say, whatever her hopes, dreams, and desires, whatever helps her become everything God wants her to be, that's what I'm going to do, which is literally what that passage says. Our job as a married person is to help our spouse become everything God wants him or her to be. That is our job. When we sign up for marriage, that's what we're agreeing to. And you can see that that works in complete 
it's, it's the antithesis. It works completely against the I am owed philosophy that we so easily fall into. Whenever you're thinking I am owed, you're not doing marriage anymore the way that God said, no, that's not how marriage is set up. That's not the way it works. You are to mutually submit, mutually put your spouse's box first. And when that happens, an amazing, an amazing covenant takes place. In fact, it is so amazing that what Paul says is it starts to become indistinguishable from the relationship that Jesus has with you, his church. It starts to look just like that. And in fact, as we read uh, the final part of this section, it's very complicated. But here's the most important thing to understand is, uh, or, or let me just ask this question as we read through this. Is he talking about marriage or is he talking about the church and Jesus? Okay, let's try to figure that, that out as we pick it up in verse 28. Okay, so let's just read this all together. We, each of you have read your part. We'll do this all together. This is still to the husbands, but you're going to see very quickly that it's actually giving a principle about marriage in general and also about Jesus and the church. So it says this. Read it with me. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Have you heard that before? It courses throughout the Bible. It is the foundation of marriage that God institutes it. The two become one flesh. And then let's finish it up. It says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Okay, so question. That about Jesus in the church or about a husband and wife? Indistinguishable. In fact, I'm reading two commentators today, uh, the best commentaries that are out on this topic, and they disagree. One's about, it's primarily about husband and wife, the other one that's primarily about Jesus in the church. G Paul was brilliant. He purposely messes that up so you can't figure it out because he's saying, don't you understand this covenant relationship, when husbands and wives do it right, it is the most powerful uh, Commitment, the most powerful relationship that we know on earth. And it rivals the commitment that Jesus and the church has. That's how incredibly powerful marriage is meant to be. That's the way that it's supposed to be. And he says it's a mystery. How does that happen? How can just two ordinary people create a bond like that? Mysterious. And it's because when you're filled with the Spirit, when God's empowering and guiding you, when you have an attitude of, I am here to submit to my spouse, something extraordinary happens in that relationship. It goes beyond, goes beyond human effort. Now it becomes something that God makes happen. And I want to share one last thought that to me, uh, really, it, it, it's something that changed my whole thinking about marriage with Julie. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that happens in the New Testament is that when Jesus loves us, because he's not here physically, uh, there's this understanding that it's kind of hard to get, right? It's sort of hard to get. 
you know, I, I guess I believe it, but it would be a whole lot easier. How many of you have said it would have been a whole lot easier if I'd been around when Jesus was here and I could have seen him and I could have touched him and I could have heard him speak to me and he would have responded to me? It would have just been so much easier. People in the New Testament times after Jesus was gone, this was an issue. Even then it was an issue. And here's the amazing thing that Paul is saying about marriage. When you're married, when you marry someone, you become Jesus's hands and feet and mouth and arms to your spouse. You become Jesus's representation on earth. That's the role you step into. So when you ask me, how do I know that Jesus loves me? The answer I'm going to give is because Julie loves me. Because Julie represents him to me. Because she puts my box of stuff first in her life. And because she loves me the way that she loves me, I know that Jesus loves me. And I'm hoping that if she was up here, she would say, how do I know that Jesus loves me? Because Kevin loves me. And he does it in a very practical way. He doesn't get it right all the time. But that's something that he desires to do. You become the representative of Jesus to your spouse. It's how your spouse knows that Jesus loves him or her. It's the most amazing thing. It's the reason that Catholics consider marriage a sacrament. Is because it is a way that we get close to God. And you know, here's the most amazing thing. When we put our spouse's box first, there's something inside of us that's so unnatural to do. We don't want to do it. But as we do it, we're changed from the inside out. We're made into different people. You know who we become like? We become like Jesus when we do that, which is God's plan all the way around. I want you to become like Jesus. That's why I put your spouse in your life, because you're going to learn how to unconditionally love somebody. It is the most amazing of things. A few years ago, there was a football player named Chris Spielman, and uh, he was a college All-American, went on into the NFL, became a Pro Bowl linebacker year after year, one of the great players, played for the Minnesota Vikings. And uh, right in the middle of his career, right at the time that he was at the height of his career, his wife, Stephanie, contracted cancer. And uh, for a while, uh, you know, they were diagnosing it and trying to figure out the plan, but eventually it was very significant and she had to go into a significant plan of chemo and radiation and so forth. And the season was coming up. Chris Spielman went in to his coach and said, I'm retiring. His coach said, what are you talking about? You're at the height of your career. He said, I know. I need to be home with my wife. She's going through this incredible thing. I've got to be home with her. The coach said, listen, <laughs> you have so much money. We can take care of her. She'll get the best doctors, the best hospitals. We can get the best caregivers. You know what? We'll, we'll make amends. We can do this. And Chris said to this coach, and later to the owner, he said, every decision we've made for our family has been about me. And she has followed me through everything and supported me and loved me. This is my time to do it for her. And he retired. He retired for three years at the height of his career. 
And then after his wife had gone through everything she'd gone through, he came back. That is what it means to mutually submit. That never comes out of a you owe me relationship, ever. Impossible. And Chris and Stephanie, as they followed Jesus, because they're Christ followers, said, this is the way Jesus would do it. So this is the way that I'll do it. And that's what it means to have a covenant marriage. That's what it means to have a covenant marriage. So let me give you a couple of things to think about this week, a couple things to work on. Here's the first question. Do you know what's in your spouse's box? Do you know the hopes, dreams, and desires that your spouse has? Uh, surprisingly, uh, you may not. You may not be totally aware. You, you just haven't been that focused on it. You could answer in a second the stuff that's in your box, but it's very hard for you to figure out what your husband or wife uh, has in theirs. And so that's the first thing. You need to figure that out. Now, if you can figure it out without asking, you'll probably get points. But if you need to ask, ask. And just say, you know, I'm ashamed to say, I'm not even sure what's in your box. I'm not even sure what your hopes, dreams, and desires are. Will you tell me some of them? And then the second thing, after you do that, two-parter here, it isn't enough just to know. Will you start moving on at least one of those things? Will you start doing something about that? And again, you might not be the wisest thing to tell your spouse that you're working on this particular thing because expectations tend to go up. I would just say, do it undercover. Just start working on it. If you're good at it, if you're good at it, they'll figure it out, okay? But, you know, that's really where it starts. And the practicality of this message will be lived out this week. You'll decide if you're going to live by this or not. It doesn't matter if you've heard it. It doesn't even matter if you know it. It just matters if you practice it, mutual submission. So that's what we're calling on you to do this week. Will you stand up? And I want to pray for us as we do that. And then we want to spend a little time just worshiping, worshiping together, bringing it back to God, because remember, it's being filled by the Spirit that gives us the power to do this. All right, so let's pray. Lord, uh, some of us stand here and we're single, and this doesn't have maybe specific relevance right now, but Lord, many of us will be married, and I pray that these lessons right now can be hammered into our hearts. For those of us that are standing and we're married, uh, I know how challenging this is. Julie and I struggle with these things constantly. But Lord, you have given us this truth about marriage, not to punish us, or to make marriage unbearable. Jesus, we fully believe and agree with you that this is the way it's meant to be. This is the way it becomes everything that you intend. It becomes the marriage of our dreams when we do this. So I pray that you'd help us to see it this way. Help us to turn away from the you owe me thoughts that we naturally have. And help us to look at how we can encourage our spouse how we can love tangibly our spouse. Jesus, how we can be you to our spouse. And we know that we won't do it perfectly. We know that there'll be many times where we get it wrong. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would fill us and help us with this. Help us to change. We are so grateful for your grace when we fail. And we pray that you build our marriages into the things you've designed them to be. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.